Have you ever had somebody ask you a question that like literally changed your life? Like I'm not talking about um, you got to go to this restaurant, it'll change your life. Like, like I'm talking about like literally actually changed the trajectory of your life. Two days ago, uh, Krista and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary and not a single one of those years would have happened would it not have been for two questions asked of me by Jeff Lockyer's wife, Becky. Uh, the four of us were out for dinner while Krista and I were still dating, um, enjoying the, an open table together, an environment of welcome and acceptance and love. Um, and we're having dinner, and in the middle of dinner, Becky kind of looks at me and she says, so explain to me why the two of you aren't engaged yet. And I went off on this long, rambly answer. I talked about my fear of commitment and uh, identity issues that I was working through. I was, I was almost 31 when I got married, which was older than most of my friends. And, um, and I had kind of assumed this identity for myself as the content single guy. And I thought as a pastor's church who was single and content, I could be sort of an example for people who are also struggling with their singleness. And they could look at me and say, well, there's somebody who's single and content and maybe it's possible. And, and I said to Becky, you know, I just feel like what I'm trying to process now is that if I get engaged, perhaps I'm going to disappoint people who were looking to me to be that example and encouragement and and I said, and maybe on the other side for the crowd that was saying over and over again, you got to get married, you got to get married. If I get engaged, then they're kind of going to look down on me, scoff a little bit, say, I told you so, and I don't want to deal with that. And I'm trying to get past all this stuff. And she, she said, time out. She said, so are you telling me, and this was her second question, are you telling me that most of the reason why you're not engaged is because you're afraid people will say that you're stupid? And I said, well, I, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. Um, but the next day I went and bought an engagement ring because I realized that she was absolutely right. And within two weeks I had proposed and within two months we were married and 16 years later uh, are still happily married with each other. But it was literally that moment of somebody investing the energy in me to be curious enough about me and us and our lives to ask a question um, that stimulated a conversation that literally changed the course of my life. And that's, that's actually what we want to talk about this morning. Um, two weeks ago, Jeff Martins started this Better Together series by looking at one of the earliest chapters in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, where after in the scriptures telling of creation, after God had said about creation that it was good and good and good and very good, that God looked out and saw something that wasn't good, that's not good. And what he saw that was not good was a human being living in aloneness. And Jeff went over and above the call of duty to describe in that sermon, just how not good aloneness is for us as human beings. We're just not, we're not created. We're not designed to function in the absence of 
community. And so Jeff pointed out that in, in order to correct the problem of Adam's aloneness, God created Eve. One theologian said, you know, when God created Adam, he created humanity. That's what the name Adam means. It's just, it means humanity. When God created Adam, he created humanity. But when God created Eve, he created community. And what Jeff didn't share was the end of that chapter in Genesis chapter 2, where God describes the kind of community that he created humanity to experience. And it says this in Genesis 2.25, it says this, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The kind of community they get to experience is described by two words. Number one, they were naked. They were exposed to each other. They were seen for who they were. They were known in the fullness of their humanity. The beautiful, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was all there on full display to be known by somebody else. There was nothing to hide. There was nowhere to hide. They just lived in this openness of being fully known. And they felt no shame. There was no fear in that. There was no embarrassment. There was no shame about being fully known for exactly who they were. There was no shame that caused them to try and hide parts of themselves from each other. There was just this courageous, naked honesty with which they lived with each other. That's the community that God has created us for, the community that makes us better when we live together in that kind of community. Then last week, Chris Fowler here, where I was in St. Catharines, um, preached, the location pastors, Mike Minema and Welland and Rick Zwiers in Vineland, talked about the power of eating together. And I got to watch Chris preach in a pepperoni hoodie, which I can only assume that most of you are trying to imagine what that might look like. Please don't even bother. It was a hoodie covered in pepperoni. I leaned over to my wife and I said, please, can I preach in my ripped jeans now? And she said, yeah, it's fine. It's after this, nothing matters. So, so but Chris and, and the location pastors talked about the power of community that is created when we, when we open up spaces around tables, welcoming, accepting, loving environments um, to gather people into an open space where community can happen. They challenged us to be like Jesus in the story with Zacchaeus, to slow down our lives enough to be aware of the people that God is bringing across our paths and to intentionally open up spaces, especially around tables like Jeff and Becky and Krista and I were sitting around because we open tables of welcome and acceptance with each other, even though Becky was very judgmental. Um, to open spaces where we get to be in community with each other. But here's the thing. 
Chris made this observation in St. Catherine's last weekend. In the story of Zacchaeus, you have Jesus slowing down and noticing Zacchaeus and inviting himself into Zacchaeus' house, which is all of our biblical justification to invite ourselves into each other's homes, just to invite ourselves over for meals. We're just trying to be like Jesus. And, and that the result of that shared meal transforms Zacchaeus' life. But Chris made this observation. The one thing Luke never tells us is what Jesus and Zacchaeus talked about. What conversation they had that transformed Zacchaeus' life. And I think that's the gap that we want to talk about this morning. The conversations that we have, often stimulated by insightful, curious, other-focused questions... That, that create conversations that literally have the power to transform lives. And so to do that, we want to look at a story that Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4. This is not um, a story about Jesus' life, what he did. This is a story that Jesus told, and it begins in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 2. It says this, Jesus taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching, he said, listen... A farmer went out to sow his seed. This is a story about a farmer who is planting his crops in order to sort of generate a harvest after the growing season. Now, you may ask yourself the question, what on earth does a story about a farmer planting seeds have to do with the conversations that we have that can transform each other's lives? Well, down in verse 14, Jesus offers... A, an explanation of the story, an interpretation of what he was trying to say when he told this story. We'll jump to his interpretation first so that we can understand the story well. This is what he says down in verse 14. He says, the farmer sows the word. He says, in the story, the farmer is sowing seed, but this, what the symbol of the seed represents are words. What the farmer is sowing, what is being spread, what is being um, symbolized by the story is the way that we use our words. In the context of the story, they are words of invitation. They are words um, inviting people into a deeper, more substantive experience of the life and love of God in their lives. They are words inviting people into a space where God can do a transformative work in their life. But they're not just any words. Um, in verse 14, it, it says the farmer sows, quote, the word, singular. In the gospel according to John, that is exactly the first title that the author gives to Jesus himself. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the only thing that God has been interested to say 
to humanity. Jesus is what God wants to communicate. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love for the world, communicated to the world. Jesus is the word that God wanted to speak that would bring life to the world, abundant life until it overflows. Jesus is what God is saying to us all of the time. And if we use our words in a way that reflects what Jesus is talking about, then really what we're doing with our words is we are speaking the word to each other. There is a way that we can speak with each other that will speak the life and love of Jesus into each other's lives in ways that will fundamentally and radically transform the trajectory of our life. Now we called the sermon this morning, pray together. Pray together doesn't sound like it has a lot to do with conversation. The reason we called it pray together um, is because we were trying to steal the eat, pray, love branding of a relatively bad movie from 10 years ago. But More deeply than that, prayer is the deepest and most substantive way that we speak the power and presence of Jesus into each other's lives. The way that we speak the life and love of Jesus into each other's lives as we pray with each other and as we pray for each other. You could say the prayer is the ultimate fulfillment of the kind of conversation that we want to talk about this morning where we learn how to speak the life and love of Jesus into each other's lives in a way that makes all the difference. So how do we do that? How do we use our words to speak the word? How do we, how do we converse Jesus into each other's lives? Well, the story develops and what Jesus does first is he talks about three ways in which how we use our words actually doesn't produce the life of Jesus in a life. Three ways that conversations fail to do the thing that words are supposed to do in our lives. This is what he says, verse four. As the farmer was scattering the seed, it says some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Now, um, a farmer in the ancient world doesn't have a, you know, a big spreader to machinery to, to, to spread the seed around the yard. He's wearing a satchel and he's reaching in and he's throwing it by hand. It's not a very precise way to spread seed around his field, but he's going to throw the seed all over the field. And then he's going to plow it to turn over the dirt, to put the seed down deep into the ground where it can germinate and begin to grow and so on. But as the farmer is scattering seed, some of the seed falls on the road beside the field. Now, the road isn't the field. The farmer doesn't own the road. The farmer's not going to plow the road. And so what happens to the seed is it ends up falling on the road and it sits right there on the surface and it never gets below the surface. And the birds come and they eat it up and the seed vanishes without leaving an impression or having any effect whatsoever. And I think some of our conversations do that. Conversations that never actually get below the surface. Conversations that never actually have the chance to put down roots and to begin to grow anything. Because they're too shallow to be of any use. 
mean, think about some of the conversations that we have. Conversations rooted in gossip. Where we're just talking about other people. Or conversations rooted in the weather or the current events. Conversations about our favorite sports teams or where we're going on vacation or our political leanings, conversations about what we plan to buy next or what we just bought and what we think about it. And there's place in our lives, obviously, for all of those kinds of conversations and small talk matters and all of that's true. But when the bulk of our words are words that just kind of sit there on the surface, Nothing is ever going to grow of the life of Christ. Nothing's ever going to come out of those kinds of conversations. They are, after we have them, going to vanish without leaving an impression or having any impact whatsoever. It's the first kind of conversation that fails. There's a second kind. In verse 5, it says, Some Seed fell on the rocky places where it didn't have much soil and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Or some um, of the seed that landed in the soil and it appeared at first like there was real promise that the plant was going to grow and it was going to produce some really valuable fruit until... The circumstances changed. The sun came up and it says the plants were scorched. The intensity of the circumstances got ratcheted up. The the heat of the circumstances withered the plants and they died. And I think that there are probably some people in our lives with whom we have, maybe even often have, great conversations and we feel like these are relationships where really something substantial something important can come out of these conversations for us or for them or for both or until the circumstances change in Jesus interpretation of this seed that falls he says the the sun represents trouble or difficulty or pain Sometimes when conversations get hard, what we discover is that they don't actually have the depth or substance that we need to speak the life of Christ into each other's lives. Because when conversations get hard, we resort to all sorts of kinds of um, conversational patterns that actually do more to kill the life and love of Christ than nurture it. The ways that we start to kind of self-righteously lecture each other. Well, you know what you should have done or give unsolicited advice or opinions. Um, We give pat answers or Sunday school answers or we spiritualize people's circumstances or if the difficulty is in the relationship itself sometimes we get defensive and we lash out or we just avoid the conversation altogether we 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 turn self-focused the beautiful thing about questions Jesus asks questions all the time Uh, I heard a, a preacher say once that Jesus was asked something like 300 questions in the Gospels. And in every instance, except for like a handful, five maybe, he answered the question with a question. Jesus was a prolific 
question asker because questions are others focused. They're curious. They're invested. They are engaged. They're trying to um, lean into the other person and their experience and who they are. But when, when conversations get hard, we get self-focused. We protect ourselves. We retreat from conversations. And these and these relationships, these conversations that seemed like they could have and should have been so fruitful in our lives to draw out the life and love of Jesus in us, um, turn out to wither and die and produce nothing. It's the third kind of conversation that he talks about in verse 7. It says, other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. The, these seed landed in good soil and, and the plant was growing and, and there was every reason to think that this plant was at the end of the day going to be fruitful except it became surrounded by weeds and weeds ended up choking out the life from that plant. And in Jesus' interpretation, he says those weeds symbolize or represent the cares and anxieties of this life and in this world. Sometimes some of our conversation, some of our words end up being consumed by the ways in which we care too much about the things the world cares about, about image management, about uh, success, about money and sex and power the ways we get consumed by living for all of the things that the world tells us should matter, even though Jesus says at the end of the day, don't actually have any lasting impact in the kingdom of God. And the truth be told that you can have all of the great conversations you want, but if at the end of the day, you care more about those things, image, success, money, sex, power, whatever. You care more about that than you care about what God is doing in your life. Then no matter how many conversations you have, the life and love of Jesus is never going to come to fruit. It is always going to get choked out by the distracted nature of how much we care too much about the things of this world. Though we have the power to speak the life and love of Jesus into each other's lives, we often don't because our words are surfacy and shallow, because our words, are, uh, our words disappoint each other in our, in our fair-weatheredness. Our ability to talk through the difficult stuff um, or our words are too often distracted by caring about the things of the world. But Jesus talks about one other kind of way to use our words. In verse 8, he says, Still other seed fell on good soil, and it came up, and it grew, and it produced a crop, some multiplying 30, and some 60, and some 100 times over. 
just creating an overabundance of life. In fact, a crop that yielded a hundred times on the investment that was sown was a, a borderline, that was a beyond a bumper crop, that was borderline miraculous production for a field. And the question is, what kind of conversations can generate that much of the life and love of Jesus in our lives, can, can generate that much of the life of the kingdom of God in us? I, st- I was reflecting on that question over the last couple of weeks, and all of a sudden, I began to think about the fact that we've entitled this sermon, Pray Together. And I began to think that's exactly true. That the kinds of conversations that would produce the most life in us are the conversations where we are talking with each other about the precisely the very kinds of things that we would pray with and for each other about. And Jesus has already told us what those things are in the prayer that he told us to pray with each other and for each other, the Lord's Prayer. In that prayer, Jesus says, the way you're going to use your words, you're going to use your words, first of all, to direct each other back to God. It starts with our Father who is in heaven. It starts with a reminder that the God who is, is a God who loves us like a heavenly parent. A God that is the source and origin of every good and perfect thing that we've ever experienced. A God that only wants to love us as God's children. It starts with an invitation for us to respond to that love. Hallowed be thy name. To lean into the beauty of the love of God for us. And to experience. It points us to the will of God in our lives. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It keeps our eyes focused on the kind of life that Jesus is inviting us into. But not only that, the words that Jesus invites us to pray with and for each other and the words that Jesus, um, the words that Jesus, I think, would want us to speak to and over each other are not just words that direct us back to God in love, but words that direct us to each other in love. Words where we experience the courageous, naked honesty of being vulnerable about what we truly need. Our daily bread and everything else besides. All the ways in which we are desperate to see God show up in our lives. Ways in which we can be courageously and nakedly honest with each other about our relationship. Where we can name the hurts that we've experienced and confess the hurts that we've inflicted and we can offer and ask for forgiveness from each other so that God can do his miraculous reconciling work with us. They're the kinds of words where we could be courageously and nakedly honest with each other about our temptations, about our struggles, 
about the battles we're fighting, the ones that we're winning and the ones that we're losing, as we invite the circle of people to enter into that with us in care and support and empathy and encouragement and accountability to walk with us so that we are not led into temptation but delivered from evil. Imagine if the bulk and the substance of most of your conversations were filled with those kinds of words. We would literally be speaking the life and love of Jesus into each other's lives and watching absolute transformation, the absolute rerouting of entire trajectories of life. Now, obviously, those aren't conversations. That's not every conversation. And it's not conversation that you have with everyone. We have to be, um, we have to be prudent. We have to be wise about who we're having those kinds of conversations with. About a year ago, I introduced us as a community to the concept of Dunbar's numbers. I don't know if, you, if any of you remember this, but they, it's the numbers of people that we have in our relational circles. I'll put it back up on the screen. You won't be able to read the words, but you can see the numbers. But Dunbar's numbers remind us that in our lives, it's reasonable to imagine that we would have about five very best friends, give or take, that we can have about 15 close friends, that we can have about 50 fairly good friends, and we probably only have about 150 people that we could call friends. Beyond that, Dunbar says there's probably 500 people you call acquaintances and maybe 1,500 people who's, who you have, um, you know their names and faces and so on. But the, the whole point is that intimacy is obviously related to the kind of circle that a particular relationship sits in. We're talking about the kinds of conversations that you would have with your five or your 15. And the kinds of conversations that those people could be trusted in because those circles are populated with people that we have discerned, hopefully, to be faithful and loyal and gentle and wise and discerning and safe and Christ-centered, uh, others-centered, the kinds of people who learn to ask us good questions, even as we're learning to ask them good questions because we want to lean in to our relationship with them. The whole point is, if we can learn in the circles that we're creating around these tables, these environments that are welcoming and accepting and loving, to speak the kinds of words that point each other back to our relationship with God and that can be courageously and nakedly honest with each other about ourselves and about how we're doing and how life is going. Those are the kinds of words that produce the life of Christ in us 30 and 60 and 100 times over that create the nearly miraculous transformations that we can experience because of Jesus Christ in our lives. I'll be honest, um, courageously, nakedly honest, and tell you I'm bad at these conversations. But lately, and I'm not going to tell you about any of them, 
But lately, God has been inviting me into a season of stepping out into what it looks like to be more courageously and nakedly honest about me and about us and about life and about how things are going. And I can already begin to see the fruit of what God is growing in me and in the people that I'm in conversations with because of it. And I want to invite you into that same journey with me. I'm going to pray for us now. And I figured probably the only fitting way to conclude this sermon is to pray for all of us the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. The one that models not only how we use our words for and with each other in relationship with God, but the kinds of words that God is inviting us to speak into each other's lives. Um, Pray with me as I pray the Lord's Prayer. I will pray. You don't need to pray it out loud. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth and among us as it is in heaven. Give us today everything that we need, including our daily bread. And forgive us for our trespasses, even as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but through our community, deliver us from evil by your spirit. For yours is the kingdom and the power and all of the glory forever and ever. Amen.